the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. Still in Coffs Harbour, where many RAAF personnel seem to have retired. Today, it's retired Wing Commander John Landale, AFC. John started his working life as a maths science teacher at Galagambone Central School. But after 18 months, he applied for RAAF pilot training, graduated to fly helicopters, and was soon with nine squadron Huey helicopters in Vietnam, where he served for 12 months. He then had a change of pace, and after a search and rescue stint, took up flying instructional duties in both Australia and also Singapore. He then continued his service with choppers at five and nine squadrons in senior squadron positions. After attending the RAF Staff College in 1980, he was posted to Defence in Canberra as managing operational requirements for helicopters before a posting to the Sinai Desert in 1984 as the Australian Contingent Commander. Another change of pace took him to Central Studies Establishment in Defence Central, where he also completed his Bachelor of Science majoring in Computing Science. In another significant change, he joined the Commonwealth Public Service in middle management systems analysis role and served in a number of departments before finishing with the Health Insurance Commission, leading teams to restructure claims processing systems for Medibank private and pharmaceutical benefits. He retired in 2001 and, yes, moved back to Coffs Harbour to become a tree hugger and a mediocre golfer. John, former wing commander, uh, we'll talk about that as we go on, but you started out teaching maths and science. Yes. That's an interesting career change from teaching to RAAF. Very interesting. My dad was a Bradford Brook and I was an only child, born fairly late in their lives. And the idea of being called up to fly in Vietnam or to be in Vietnam uh, was fairly abhorrent. So I had to get out of Galagambone. I had to get out of being called up. So I made the decision to join the Air Force instead. So you're obviously your interest in maths and science, a silly question to start with, mm. but to what extent has that kind of discipline, which maths and science presupposes, been of assistance in the career that you had within the Air Force? Not particularly the maths and science so much as the teaching aspects of it. I taught for 18 months at Galagambone, would you believe? And, and then I think my successes were very much in the Air Force as a, as a flying instructor and, and teaching one-on-one. I enjoyed teaching guys, young blokes coming up to fly on helicopters and windshields and in Singapore. Very special skill to be a successful teacher, it really is. Yeah, I, I think that uh, one of the things that I, I struggled on pilot's course, just scrape, the, scrape through, and there were some people who were ex-fighter pilots and ex-fast jet pilots who didn't really have a great deal of patience or empathy with the people who were having some trouble. So I thought, that's a good example for me not to follow, and I'll go the other way. 
did you actually, when you actually applied to join the Air Force, hmm. were you given a choice of which path within the Air Force you wanted to follow? No, we, uh, we were just pointed to uh, helicopters because at that stage it was uh, 1967 and uh, they were building up the requirement to have a whole bunch of blokes ready for turnover onto the Vietnam thing. My last uh, flying mission, if you like, was to fly, try and find Harry Holt and down at Cheviot Beach. How about that? Oh, <laughs> and I didn't see a Chinese submarine at all. <laughs> but I did see. I did get to know all of the pieces of seaweed by their first name. Yeah. <laughs> what a way to end up. What a way to end up. On. Um, so the heli. Let's just focus on the helicopter for a moment. There's mm. not a lot of when people talk about the air force when who are not in the air force they immediately think of jets yes but don't always think of helicopters or even bombers how um, how difficult is a helicopter to fly it's a little bit difficult to get used to the coordination to start with but once it becomes uh, self-fulfilling you know so you get very used to it you don't have to think about it you just do it it happens it's just another skill that the old brain box works out. It's not particularly difficult once you get hang of it. So is it a case of using both hands and feet? Yes. What is the role of the feet? The feet is to counteract the yaw that, that's induced by the, the motor through the main gearbox of the rotor. So that if, if they didn't have the feet to control the tail rotor, the aircraft would spin relative to the, in the opposite direction to the main rotor. Uh, oh. it, so it counters that and allows you to point in the right direction, particularly when you're not moving forward and have the weather cocking of the tail boom keeping you somewhat straight. Sure. Yeah. In terms of degrees of difficulty, because you've flown both, mm -hmm. uh, plane as opposed to helicopter, how would you rate the degree of difficulty between the two? They're, they're slightly different skills, but it's just another another flying skill that you can acquire just by practice, just like anything. I can't really put one harder than the other. I suppose helicopters initially are harder, but if we were working on techniques to make it much more easier. When I was learning to fly helicopters, especially learning to hover, for example, because there's so much lag in the system, you find yourself over-controlling and, and so on. Uh, later on, we had some guys being taught, Navy blokes actually, went to England, picked up some skills over there, brought them back and then introduced them to us. And we went from uh, about two or three periods of learning to hover to about 20 minutes. So those so skills, it was just a matter of, of techniques and skills to, to uh, impart, if you want. Are you able to are you able to say what those those skills they brought back were to someone who's never <laughs> been in a helicopter but I've never flown one? Well, the main thing was not to try and chase the induced uh, over control. It was a matter of flying attitude and letting things dampen out of their own accord. It's just human nature to want to over, uh, if the aircraft's moving right, you try and move it, move the control column to the left, for example invariably because of the lag it, it would you overdo it so you end up swaying backwards and forwards if sure. you've got the discipline to actually say don't do that anymore just pick the put the horizon right on the on the key on the dashboard hold it there and it'll just self self dampen out it wasn't intuitive interestingly enough
So in, in the training, because, I mean, my images, we'll get to Vietnam in a moment, but mm. my image in Vietnam is that we're looking at gunships and all, all those sorts of things where there, there's a multiplicity of people on board the helicopter. Mm -hmm. uh, was your training merely just focus on your flying the helicopter or was it the training involved also working in conjunction with the crew? Oh, very much so. Uh, and not only just working on the crew, but working with other helicopters, so uh, doing a formation type, a lot of formation work and so on, was also important. Um, yes, I'm happy to talk about some of the techniques that we adopted from the fighter pilots world into helicopter formations and insertion of SAS patrols, for example. We we're very, very successful at doing that. Tell us about that. Well, a SAS patrol would be a, generally a group of about five guys, and they were being they, we would insert them into a, a hole in the jungle which neither of us we'd seen before. So we, it could it could be anything down there. It could be a VC base camp or whatever. Our job was to try and get them into uh, get the SAS patrol on the ground with sufficient stealth that. No one really knew that an aircraft had landed and taken off again. And the way we did that was we had one aircraft very high, about 4,000 feet, and the aircraft carrying the patrol would be down low at treetop level. And behind us were two gunships. And we go roaring along at a given, he a given altitude and heading from the command aircraft. And he, as this, the hole in the jungle came up, say, on our right-hand side, he would give us directions, higher pad coming up, two o'clock, uh, 500 metres or something like that. And as soon as we get, see, get to see the pad, we do a slam brake turn like you do on a motorbike and go from 110 knots to about 30 knots, land the aircraft, guys got off, pull it up again and then tack on behind the gunships. And for all intents and purposes, unless you're actually watching it, you never knew that an aircraft had actually gone in there. Right, so the, the helicopter above in the top would that be similar to a, almost like a forward air controller in, in terms of controlling what was happening below? Uh, he was more like a, a mission controller. Then we would fly away, and as I was saying to Pete just a while ago, we would fly up uh, about 4,000 feet away from the, the zone, and the, so long as the SAS guys could last 20 minutes without being compromised, they were on their own. If, if they were compromised in any way, we would have to go back down and get them in the middle of firefight or whatever. Uh, and uh, it was that time when you're flying at 4,000 feet, you tended to be, your mind was doing it to yourself. You know, you, you're a bit concerned about what might, might happen. You're straining for blokes whispering on the radio because they didn't want to be overheard on the ground. Sure. It was, it was a pretty uh, interesting time. Were all of the helicopters armed, or were some? I mean, you had gunships, I know, but w yeah. what about the rest? Uh, yeah, we we carried uh, door guns, uh, M60 machine gun door guns, and, and we just had personal weapons, of course. Okay, so on on a normal run, what would the crew number be on a helicopter, and what would their role? Well, we had a, a pilot, co-pilot, and two crewmen, and. Uh, so we'd carry up to 11 people on board when we were flying. And what uh, would the capacity of that helicopter be in terms of people you've got to pick up? How many could you take? Then we could take seven. 
seven addition to the crew. Yes, in addition to the crew. We would do what's called a combat assault, where we'd fly a company of troops in and land them on the ground at the one time, doing a, a eight aircraft formation with two gunships and fighters around the edges. That was pretty a big production that way. But, uh, you mean fighters as in jet fighters? Mm, yeah. The difference in speed. How did how did the planes uh, stay in conjunction? Oh no, they didn't fly. They they would actually prep the area before we came along, okay. and they they just they'd uh, beat up the uh, periphery of the of the landing zone, and we'd land in the middle of it. So, did you have many uh, near misses or escapes, close escapes, while you were flying? Uh, you, you, you often had hot extractions and things like that. Uh, I didn't take a bullet hole in the whole time I was there. Uh, my gargling angel, as Lunig would put it, looking after me very well. <laughs> but the helicopter itself, did it take did it take fire? Uh, no, I didn't. Well, no, I didn't have a helicopter that it took uh, that got hit at all in 12 months. You you have said you uh, were particularly involved or liked the medical evacuations. What I did. Well, I I, I didn't really believe in what we were doing from a strategic point of view. I was a professional uh, air, uh, pilot, professional Air Force officer, so I did what I was told, but I could justify being there better if I took the made every effort to be part of medevacs whenever I could. If there was a guy wounded or hurt in any way, we would go and get them, as opposed to American dust-offs that would only go in once the, the firefighting had stopped. They didn't carry weapons. So, right. so we were, my, our goal was to try and make sure we got any wounded Aussies to a hospital in 20 minutes. And that, that was something that we had, and I, I adhered to in my own mind, made sure it happened. Were there a lot of those medical evacuations you were involved? Not, not many, but uh, you know, not uh, every week or anything like that, but enough to make sure you're reminded that, what you, that, that it's dangerous out there. Did the Americans look after their own wounded? They go in and evacuate uh, them? I know. The Americans also got involved in dusting off our guys as well. It just depended on who, what, what aircraft were available at the time. These sure. were guys, you know, may have stepped on a mine or didn't necessarily happen in active. It could be passive damage as well. How would you describe to someone who had not been there when they asked you what was Vietnam like? How would you describe your experiences in Vietnam to someone who had not been involved? I think in some ways it was a Hemingway adventure. A bit like uh, you know, Adventures of a Young Man and Hemingway's short stories. Uh, and sometimes it was morally incorrect to be there and, and beating and seeing villages and innocent people being built, uh, fired upon. Otherwise, the best thing for me was just to be able to support the army guys as the best way I could. And, sure. and just made sure that whatever I did, I did as best I, the best I could possibly achieve. I believe you also, did you not post-Vietnam have an exchange with the Singaporean Air Force? I did, yes. Um, I was a flying instructor at Point Cook, uh, flying my dear windshields, which I loved to bits. And uh, we were posted on exchange to the Singapore Air Force after a couple of years flying at Point Cook. 
we, la- we lived at Changi and uh, flew out of Changi before Changi became Changi International. You were a flying instructor there as uh, yes. well? Yes, no, a flying instructor. That's where we were appointed principally. That's what we were doing. We were flying a, a little Italian aircraft called a Sia Machetti, which was, which was uh, a little speedster, but totally inappropriate for ab initio flying instructing. But that's okay. Apparently, uh, the Italians came out and put on a demonstra- flying demonstration with Sia Machetti, did an aerobatic display display based at 10 feet can you imagine that this aircraft flying around and uh, so when they bought the aircraft they flew them out from Italy and this guy brought his lady friend with him and they had very poor ventilation so she was gradually stripping off so when they arrived at at Changi uh, Tenga that's right Tenga the Navy uh, Army and so on uh, military bigwigs of Singapore Armed Forces were there this guy got out of his aircraft and out came his bird with the knickers and bra on, dripping with perspiration. <laughs> quite, quite an achievement. <laughs> so they certainly then turned around and bought the aircraft. <laughs> <laughs> Would appear so. <laughs> yeah. does, does one of those ladies come with every aircraft? That's right. So what, what was the Singaporean Air Force or Armed Forces, what, tell us, how would you estimate their, their levels of excellence? Ah, Singaporeans, uh, education-wise, were quite academically qualified, but they did it through essentially rote learning. And so much of the problem of learning for the Singaporeans was rote learning. So they did things by numbers, essentially. And they didn't have what our guy, our young blokes in Australia have, or like, you know, guys and girls, a sort of a natural ability to be able to think through situations. Yep. Um, there were one or two guys in the Singaporean team that were absolutely phenomenal pilots, but the rest of them were very staid and stra- um, and didn't handle difficult situations. Did they learn from you how to think outside the box? I think they did. Uh, there were two ways of getting through to them. You could break them down and rebuild them up into your own style, which is very painful and took a long time. Or you could just have to quiz them over and over again, because we used to fly in Singapore airspace quite a bit. So could, if the guys didn't know what they were doing, they could end up running into an aircraft, uh, an airliner, essentially. So we had to make sure that these fellows knew what they, where their limits were and where the areas were. And it was always a bit of a risk firing them off solo. They were nice kids and uh, the Australians, there was Australians, Poms, New Zealanders, all on exchange as part of the squadron. I think the Australians were very well regarded by the Singaporeans. We got on very well with the, with the Chinese guys. You came back to Australia as a training flight commander? Yeah. What did that involve? Well, the aim of the game was we were running the flying training school for helicopter flying training for Air Force and Navy. And I just happened to be the bloke in the, in the, the front office, that's all. Yeah, I enjoyed teaching helicopters as well, very much so. We had quite a bit of latitude on what we could teach. And we were one of the few aircraft air forces in the world left to do engine off landings called auto-rotations. They, ha- they were hairy 
sort of things to teach because you had a very short window of opportunity to let the guy get into a, a learning situation and you, you're resurrecting the situation and not wrap yourself up on a, as a metal ball on the airfoil. But the, the beauty of it was that guys ended up with a much more sense of awareness, a sense of confidence that they could handle emergency situations with, with, with professionalism and skill. Every now and again we'd bust an aircraft, but overall I think we ended up with better pilots as, accordingly. What about your mapping operations in Indonesia? <laughs> Talk about adventures of a young man, that, that was really great. We, we as Australia Foreign Aid Program mapped the entire archipelago of the Indonesian islands from the decade of 1970 through to 81, 82. And uh, we, we were responsible for, when I was there, we were doing the Halmahira um, and uh, Ambon and I must tell you about Ambon. Our job was to fly the helicopter taking uh, the mapping guys from the army from point to point where they would track satellites. Now they didn't have GPS in those days so they had to stay for about two or three days getting sufficient passes to get a precise position on the ground with their satellite tracking gear. We had helicopters, our helicopters fitted with floats so we could land in little atolls, tie up the coconut palms, you know, it's great, great adventure. But we had to plan the next year, following year uh, operation out of Ambon down through Aru, which is the islands to the south between us and Darwin, between Ambon and Darwin, essentially. Yep. And it was where the Japanese launched their bombing raids a lot on, onto Darwin from these airstrips. And our job, I, my job was, uh, was attached to a caribou and that was flying around and landing on these old strips. First aircraft ever to land on them since World War II, which was quite fun. I had a day off and I, Ambon has a war grave quite an amazing place, beautifully cared for like all Australian war graves are. And I was wandering up the, the uh, headstones, reading them, and I happened upon my mother's brother's grave, and I didn't even know it was there. He was a, a bow fighter pilot. He shot down and killed over Timor, and unbeknownst to me, was re-interned at Ambon War Cemetery. And I, ha I happened upon it and this little remote air place in the middle of nowhere. How about that for, for coincidence, eh? One of the things that we would do, we'd do when we were based in uh, Amberley was to take the young fellows up into the highlands of New Guinea and teach them operations in high density altitude situations because the old helicopters didn't really like to operate up around 10,000 feet. So we'd operate, we'd fly up around Mount Hagen and places like that. But there was a, a volcano down off Madang called Karkar Island and this, this volcano erupted and, and it vaporised two or three Australian volcanologists that were clipped, uh, camped on the caldera. And we went down there with some, some replacement guys and their equipment because this island was owned by a bloke called Roger Middleton who bought it during the reparations after the First World War. There was about 12,000 people on the island. One of our jobs was to try and plan how could we possibly evacuate these people because it sat on the lip of the subduction zone of the Pacific plate and it went down 12,000 feet deep so there was no way you could, you could moor a ship there. We landed in the middle of the volcano 
there were rocks and stuff going in all directions. I thought, this was just a very sensible thing to do. And uh, it was at Downsman before we realised that, that the particles were very highly charged. You know, those aircraft that flew a, threw a plume in, in uh, Indonesia had a four-engine failure. Well, we did that before that happened, and our jet, we didn't realise that that was dangerous. So it flew, flew out of there, with comp the windscreens were completely black, at, and uh, I'm not sure what it had done to the engines and inlet, inlet guide vanes and so on, but obviously our engines were not as highly tuned as the uh, jet aircraft of the transport area. Anyway, that was, that was quite an adventure to land in the middle of a volcano. I also want to come to 19, the 1980s, 1984. You were the mm. uh, commanding of the Australian contingent in yes. these. No, yeah. please. What an experience that must it have been. It was wonderful. It was a, it was a great. It was, it was a great privilege. Uh, it was a, an initial peace initiative that was probably the best at the time, and it's probably in today's standards still would be the best going. You never hear about it because it's probably so successful, but. What we, what we're essentially there for was a uh, it was enacting the Camp David Accords where Carter and Bagan and Sadat that's right yes. was signed this and we we monitored the handing back of the Sinai to the Egyptians. Our job was to sit in the middle of the between the two and act as like a marriage guidance counselor where they lost the ability to communicate and to observe the force build-up on both sides and tell the other what was happening so that they couldn't spring a 1974 Yom Kippur incident or a, or a 63 six-day war. Our job was essentially one of monitoring the, the arms situation between the two and to act as a communication environment that was a safe place for them to be. And it was a really good initiative. It really worked well. It was very proud of it. What aircraft were there? What what did you have with you? We had we had ten helicopters, ten Iroquois, and we had a um, hundred guys, Australians, and forty New Zealanders. But there were some interesting cause, interesting people there. There was Colombians, Colombians, yeah. and Uruguayans, and Fijians had a. An infantry battalion, uh, American in infantry battalion. Let me see, the Poms ran the base camp, the Italians ran the, sh ran the ships, the Dutch ran the military police and the communications and so. But it was, it was a wonderful time to meet all these people and be part of a very positive initiative for peace. How would you explain what we ran? You, you did what the Dutch did and what the... We've just provided rotary wing transport to fly anywhere between Gaza uh, and the 1948 line of demarcation down to Elat and then right down to the tip of Halmahira, which is the, the bottom tip of the Sinai Peninsula. So all that area, we, we took what was called the Observant Force, which were essentially my, um, US State Department people, and they were the ones that did all the monitoring of the arms build-ups on both sides. Yep. So we provided them the transport to get round and do that job. Your reasons for resigning? I was going to give the, air, the helicopters to the army. The last thing I needed to be in the army. I had started a science degree back in my days at, at um, Williamtown on search and rescue days, which was another wonderful time of my life. And I decided to finish it. And be, uh, so I, did a, I changed it to a computing science degree. 
ended up leaving the Air Force and uh, did systems analysis for Medicare and pharmaceutical benefits and things like that. Yeah, uh, that just—I'm uh, fascinated by that, actually, John. You—you've you, said I've read that you reconfigured the pharmaceutical benefits scheme. We we plan to do that. We had a national plan to totally redo the pharmaceutical benefits scheme. Unfortunately, it had an identity card part of as part of the process. And there'd been a real furor over the Australia card. And so the public servants at the time in, in health didn't have the intestinal fortitude to push it again. So the aircraft, the, assist, the project died a death of a thousand cuts. But it's interesting, it's being brought in by stealth. Instead of being a you know, big bang type approach that we wanted to do, was uh, they're doing it by little bit, by little function, by little function. And it's actually happening over the last 20 years. <laughs> Just a little bit is happening, but it's a bit slow, that's all. It's a very satisfying experience because not often do you sit down and say, with well, someone say to you, here's a system that works reasonably well, but a lot of people die from drug to drug interactions and all other things that could be done better. Get a team together and design a way of doing it better. It was it was a great privilege to have that opportunity, even though it's very depressing that it all fell in a heap. Look, John, you you seem like a very gentle soul, and and what you have done for the writing, helping write the history of the Royal Australian Air Force and its 100 years is quite remarkable. I'm very impressed with the fact of your medical evacuation in Vietnam. I'm also very impressed with the fact that Ernest Hemingway seems to occupy a very important part of the freedom of reading. So thank you for your service, sir. Thank you. And thank you for the privilege of being able to share it with you today. Lovely to meet you. Globally, the RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day, contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice, which has won it a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of Per Adua Ad Astra. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.